And I find people often talk past each other. For example, people like me who say, language learning is largely implicit. Um, you don't learn languages explicitly. And then someone will argue, a teacher will say, but no, this, this is how it happens and, and yeah, you gotta learn the rules. And what they don't understand what it, the, is that my definition of language is not the same definition of language that they have. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Bill Van Patten, the diva of second language acquisition, returns to Speaking of Language to chat about revolution and his recent talk about barriers to innovation in language teaching. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to welcome Bill Van Patten back to our podcast. Dr. Van Patten gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on barriers to innovation in language teaching, and we will continue our conversation on this topic. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Bill. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you, Angelic, for having me back. I mm -hmm. was just like back twice because I was I know, a right? podcast before and then I just did a talk with you guys and I know. I'm back. It's so. like we just can't get enough. That's that's how Third it goes. Third time's the charm, right? Yep, yep, yep. So before we launch into the topic, can you please tell us a little bit more about your path with languages and SLA? My path, okay. Um, I grew up bilingual, uh, Spanish and English, because I'm half Mexican and grew up here in California. And I always had a sort of a fascination with languages because it, it was interesting to me for lots of reasons. Um, but I didn't know, I went to a small private university um, Jesuit institution here in California. You may know it, Santa Clara. And um, I never heard of linguistics. You know, I just mm. didn't know that existed. And I went to graduate school in Texas to do Latin American studies and economics and it didn't quite work out. Long story short, um, somebody, I had a TA ship and someone said, hey, you seem to have a really scientific mind, which I sort of did because I also have a background in chemistry and you should try linguistics. And I go, what's that? And they said, it's the scientific study of language. I go, oh, cool, let me try that. So I switched out of my major <laughs> and wound up doing that at Texas. And then just about that time is when second language research began taking off in California. And so um, I did not know that. And I took a course in child language acquisition with Carlotta Smith in linguistics department at Texas. And I sat there and I was, I think it was a master's student at the time and I went, do people ask these kinds of questions about second language learning that they ask in first language acquisition? Hmm. Um, and then I was off and running after that. So that's what nice. happened. In your talk, you differentiated between real innovation and pseudo innovation in language teaching. Can you please recap that difference for our listeners? Do I have a time limit? No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, pseudo innovation um, is what I recommend. I refer to as old wine in new bottles. And what that means is we tend to do the same old thing, but we try to do it a different way. So um, we still might teach verb charts or something like that, or let's say German case endings. But rather than do it this way, we do it this way. Or now we add technology, or now we have uh, visuals we put up in class. But we're still trying to teach 
case endings, or we're still trying to teach verb endings or whatever. So it's, the, it's old wine in new bottles, or some twist on the old wine. Um, that's pseudo-innovation. We haven't really done anything different. Um, real innovation means let's, let's just not teach the old wine. Let's just get rid of the old wine. We want new wine. And let's get rid of the bottles too. Let's just, let's just throw everything out and say, if we had a class, if we had language teaching that was truly informed by what we know about language communication and language acquisition, what would that class look like? Um, without any preconceived notions about anything mm-hmm. else that we have. Um, that's where, tr- to me, true innovation starts. So in your talk, you highlighted five interrelated barriers to real innovation, and those were knowledge, personnel, power, institutionalized education, and time. We encourage our listeners to actually go to our website and watch the entire talk you gave. But can you briefly comment on what the connection between these five barriers is and specifically what we as educators can do to possibly overcome them? Yeah, of those five, I think the one that I ended up talking to people about and saying, if you're going to tackle true innovation, you need to deal with the nature of institutionalized education, because I think that's the center of all these things about the power relationships, um, the knowledge-based people have, time on task uh, for teachers, not for students or learners, um, and personnel are all related to how we conceptualize education in this one-size-fits-all model. Um, and the one-size-fits-all uh, model is that there's something about universities where we like things to be the same. So, um, just look at a course catalog, for example. Mm-hmm. You can you can flip a course catalog and point to chemistry. You can point to biophysics. You can point to if there's such a thing as biophysics. There kind of sort of is actually. Um, you can point to um, geography. You can point to French, and you can point to I don't know what. Um, cultural studies, let's say. And they all have the same format in the catalog. They all have to follow a similar description. They all have to do them. They have to have so many hours per unit, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Because there's this one size fits all that somehow French and Spanish are going to look on the page just like chemistry and geography look or history or Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, And so institutionalized education, because of that model, tries to make languages fit into everything else from grading students so they can have a GPA to the personnel that's hired and what their knowledge is, what they know about language, language acquisition, language teaching, or how they get that knowledge or whether anybody even has that knowledge. Um, Time on task, which is does institutionalized education actually give people the time to innovate or is it built into the fabric of institutionalized education to mitigate against that? for example, teaching more. We want you to teach more because that's what we're here for. But if you're teaching more, you have less time to innovate if you're going to innovate at all. And so the, all these things that I talked about interconnect with this idea of institutionalized education and what it does. Um, and one final comment on that um, is what I mentioned in the talk was the top-down nature of institutionalized mm-hmm. education, where it affects languages the following way, at least language education the following way is that hidden in that model uh, is that we have graduate programs. I'm talking about research institutions like Cornell, Michigan State, where I was, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I was before, 
we have PhD programs. And the idea is you have PhD programs and we, ha- and we want our students to know this, that, and this other thing to be PhD students. So that trickles down to MA students. The MA students need to know this, that, and this other thing if they're going to be PhD students. But then that trickles down to majors. If you're going to go on to grad school from a Spanish major, mm-hmm. French major, you need to know this, that, and the other thing. That trickles down to the language program. If you're going to be a language major, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and so you have this very few people at the top because there are not that many PhD candidates. Um, and what the perceived needs are for those people eventually trickling down in very subtle ways to thousands and thousands of students um, at the lower levels. Um, and so that needs to be looked at as well. That's all part of institutionalized education. That way we, we, we subtly uh, and implicitly perceive these things. Yeah. I also like that you specifically pointed out that this institutionalized education or, or all of these barriers are somewhat unique to each individual institutional context or educational context that you know, what we have here at Cornell is completely different from other Ivy League institutions, right? I mean, it's it's like individual ecosystems and that that is something that we also need to take into consideration as we're thinking about what is innovation and, and how do we actually encourage that innovation comes about. Right, exactly. Because uh, one of the things I like to remind people is that all language teaching is dynamic and local. Um, so that you want what happens in your language programs and what happens with your language teachers um, to be fluid, to be dynamic. You don't want it to be static um, because it can change from day to day. It can change from course to course. Um, and you could be teaching two classes of the same level and one class responds differently than another class. And you have to be flexible. So it ha- has to be dynamic in that sense, but also be local in the sense that um, the way you tackle institutionalized education and the barriers it presents may be different at Cornell than it would be at Michigan State, for example, or 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 at some other kind of institution, right? Um, and also because your students are who they are, the the interests. What kind of? I mean, there's a lot. I'll take, if I take a typical typical 19 year old across the country, I can find a lot of things that would be common to 90 year olds across the country. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then, but then. I would be remiss if I tried to tell everybody across the country that a 19-year-old in rural Alabama going to the University of Alabama for the first time is the exact same kind of student as when I was at the University of Illinois Chicago, who was an urban urban student. Sure. And and, and maybe a full-time working mother mm-hmm. going to I mean, So all those things feed into our local decision-making and how we tackle these barriers too. So, Following up on that, can you... Talk about the role of students and learners in the innovation process. We can innovate, but we have to make sure that learners understand innovation. So let's just take a very concrete example. Let's say a student comes out of a K through 12 program, or I should say a nine through 12, a high school program um, in Spanish, and they place into third semester Spanish. Mm-hmm. And they get into that course and there's no textbook. Um, there's no focus on grammar, for example. There's no, you know, verb conjugations you got to memorize and no fill in the blanks and no standardized testing. There's something else different going on. And they come into that class going, whoa, what is, I'm not learning anything because the first thing you hear, I'm not learning anything. Um, So you wind up having a situation in which 
the social context of the classroom isn't fitting the students' expectations because they have mm. these preconceived notions. And they may not understand they're going to be evaluated a different way, and they may not understand how that evaluation works. And so, um, so students have to be brought along very early on. If you're going to innovate, they have to be part of understanding. They're not going to help you with innovation, but they have to understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, how they're going to be evaluated, and they have to understand that this is not going to look like something that they may have experienced before. Um, and so it's very important to, to try to figure out ways in which we can communicate that to students very, very early on. Um, and my experience at Michigan State, for example, was exactly that. Students who went through our 101, 102 first year program and went into the third semester program, eh, more of the same. They were so used to it because we had, we had institutionalized them, as mm-hmm. it were. We had socialized them mm-hmm. in the first year. The ones who placed them from high school had to be brought up to speed. And they, and they, the ones that had difficulty were the ones coming out of the first year, didn't have the difficulty. They were used to what we were doing and they understood it. Um, so, um, so yeah, you have to work at helping students understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Well, and this ties to what you talked about under that first barrier of knowledge that oftentimes people, and I think this, this includes not only students, but sometimes also educators are not familiar really with the nature of language, the nature of communication, and the nature of acquisition. Yes, that happens more often than I care to talk about. <laughs> I'm always get, I'm always getting in trouble on certain sites on on the internet, which I sh- shall remain nameless when I throw things out. Um, and I find people often talk past each other. Mm-hmm. For example, people like me who say language learning is largely implicit. Um, you don't learn languages explicitly. And then someone will argue, a teacher will say, but no, this, this, is, this is how it happens and, and you, know, you got to learn the rules. And what they don't understand what it, the, is that my definition of language is not the same definition of language that they have. Because I'm a linguist and I think about language differently, mm-hmm. right? And they think language is those rules on a textbook page. And I'm trying to tell them, no, that's not language at all. That's not what's in your head. It'll never be in your head. Um, we have no mechanism to turn that into your head. And so we have to find, we have to get that knowledge so that people are talking the same language. What is our definition of language? What's our definition of communication? And what are our five basic things we know about acquisition, for example, that we can all agree on and so that they form basis of how we talk about stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been working on that for a while, Angelica. And it's, been, it's, it's been tough. <laughs> I know. It's been tough. It's tough. I know. It's tough. But yeah, I mean, um, basically when, when the question came up, you know, what's the solution? How do we overcome these barriers? Um, you said we need a revolution. We do need, we, we do need a revolution, but I think, I think people, the, the way to start making change, if we, assuming we want to make the change is to sit down and actually critically examine institutionalized education. Um, and the K through 12 first system, for example, would benefit by that because they would have that trickle down effect. Mm-hmm. If the universities, if we could sit down and actually scrutinize what we do and ask those hard questions and try mm-hmm. to come up with solutions, then the K through 12 system would benefit because then they wouldn't be beholden to universities to try mm-hmm. to prepare students to take university classes yep. necessarily. You know, they, they, they would be, oh, my students will be preferred to university now because I'm innovating the same way they're innovating. So um, anyway, yeah, so... Um, those those um, those knowledge sources need to be out there, and they need to, we need to get them into people's hands. So, have you seen a great example of innovation in the last few years in higher education? 
No, I mean, <laughs> I would say no, not in language education and not in education, not in, not in higher ed more generally. And I, I'm sure deans, department chairs and administrators would beg to differ. But, oh, Bill, look what we've done with this innovation or that. And again, it's pseudo innovation. They mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. they're doing something mm-hmm. new, but again, they're doing old wine and new bottles. Yeah. So for example, I mean, I would challenge a dean if the dean said, Bill, but we had, look at our, look at our, here, here's an example. Here's an example of what I would consider a major innovation. A major innovation. Let's take language majors, a Spanish major, a French major, a German major. Innovation one, get rid of requirements. They're not getting requirements. You do have to have hours for a major. Okay, so you have to have 30 hours in German, 30 hours in French. Great, but no requirements. Second part of innovation is we no longer teach periods and genres and you know, intro to linguistics or intro to that or a survey in this. We don't do that anymore. Get rid of that. Think of other ways that, what does it mean to have some understanding about Spanish and the Spanish speaking world or French and the French speaking world and so on? What does that mean? Um, so, so you get rid of requirements, you get rid of your old course descriptions and your idea of what courses are. Um, and then, and then three, you start thinking about how it is that my students are using this for their own lives. Mm-hmm. How does it inform the decisions we make in forming these majors, right? So um, they're not going to go into grad school. They're not. Come on, that's a myth that most of these students, they're not going to go into grad school. So we have this grad school program holding these majors for hostage. Um, but they might go into med school. They might go on to dental school. They might go on to business school. They might not go into anything. Um, but... Do they have any kind of career readiness or life readiness for what they're getting out of your Spanish classes? And it's not, you can't say, oh, I taught them to critically think. No, you haven't showed me that. You haven't taught them to critically think, actually. So get rid of that. Get get, get rid of that old chestnut. That's just, just not an argument anymore. But what are they going to do with Spanish and French and their knowledge mm-hmm. of French culture and French and Spanish-speaking peoples? Um, and, and just rethink all those things. So that would be, for example, of Trina, I would challenge a dean or a department chair to say, have you done those things? That would be true innovation, and they have it. So do you think that programs like languages across the curriculum could be a, a potential starting point for real innovation? Because you just mentioned, right, I mean, are our students ready to go out in the real world with the knowledge that we equip them with? So would an approach where we combine, I mean, many students have, have dual majors, so focusing more on those connections between language and some other interest of a student? Would that be? Yeah. 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 I would do that. And I'd also think about um, at the same time, looking at study abroad programs, these would go mm-hmm. hand in hand. We want students to get out of where they are here and go somewhere else. Right. So one of the suggestions I made one time to study abroad was like 20% of our students doing majors are pre-med majors, hmm. but they can't go abroad because mm-hmm. their curricular is so packed. Sure. So they're doing a they're doing a pre-med major and they're doing a Spanish major at the same time. And, they, and what they want is skills in Spanish. So why why are your programs in study abroad look the same where you can find course equivalents for your Spanish mm-hmm. courses? Why don't we have an internship for medical students in our study abroad program where they shadow doctors? 
or they work in a lab or they do this or they do that. We come up with a whole new idea of study abroad for these kinds of students and they get university credit for it. And it works. They get some kind of Spanish credit, but they also get something that goes toward their life skills and also to um, something that might count for. They might get a, a, a course credit for something they're doing as a pre-med major. You, yeah. you know, um, you might get more students doing that if you just rethink what study abroad is along with language across the curriculum. I think those go hand in hand. So yes, mm-hmm. I think they could. those could be potentially really innovative things. Where do you suggest language educators start to innovate? Oh my gosh, I don't start. That's a tough question. Because what I was telling people today in the talk was that it's not going to start with trying to do an innovation right now. It's going to be coming up with your wish list mm-hmm. of what innovations you want. Make that wish list. Like when I when I got to Michigan State, I, one of my I, as I was telling people today, one of my first things was I want to get rid of textbooks in the classroom. Mm-hmm. How do I do that? And I want to do this. And I want to. So I made my wish list. And then once you get your wish list, then you start to figure out how can I make these things happen. Because without a wish list, you're not gonna. So what does innovation mean? And and what's on that list? And you prioritize a list. And then you also have to make a plan. You have to do things too. Um, in the sense of um, you have to look at um, how you're going to get time to do these things. And, and um, if you can't get time off, how can, how can you make a plan so it happens over a number of years to, to, to come to fruition? Um, so you have to do all those kinds of thinking things too. Try to get other people on board with you. Um, and then, but if I were to give a person in language education one single piece of advice or say, start your wish list with this and see if you can make this happen. How can you get rid of textbooks? Get rid of that textbook in the classroom. Uh-huh. Get rid of it. Get rid of it and see what happens. What what happened? Because hmm. I think there would be a domino effect. Uh-huh. Um, all kinds of things would start to do if you started just there. And, you know, I think maybe that's where we need to rekindle conversations with our colleagues in K-12 because that is happening, I think, much more Mm. in high schools and in in middle schools and language programs. And maybe there is a way to learn with and from each other and and move forward that way. Yeah, there's a lot of innovation happening, particularly in middle school and 9 through 12 with languages. Um, And um, there are... Um, there's actually somebody who's has a dot com site called the deskless the deskless classroom, huh. and she's a language teacher in Utah. I'll, I'll mention her, uh, um, Elisa Cardenas. Um, she is a Spanish teacher in the Salt Lake area, and um, she advocates and other people doing this. There's no desk in the classroom. They have chairs that could not get to sit on the floor, but they don't have desks in front of them. And when you get rid of desks, look at the look at the impact that has. Well, you have no place to put mm-hmm. paper and pencil, no place to put a textbook. So now it's just you and the teacher there. And language and communication become central to what you're doing because there's nothing in front of you to distract you from that. And it also puts a burden on teachers to do things in class that would be different. And it also puts a burden on students that have to pay attention more because their notes aren't in a textbook. Mm-hmm. And they can't look down at a desk and, you know, I mean, so... The idea of a deskless classroom is an interesting concept, too, as a starting point. So, Well, you know, that actually reminds me of some of the work that's happening within the realm of language centers about space design yep. and looking at how language centers have changed from this very, 
you know, just classroom set up, teacher fronted, you know, or, or the traditional language lab for, you know, uh, that came out of the audiolingual time um, to looking at spaces now that oftentimes don't have desks, right, that have comfortable seating, but are more conducive to interaction, to engagement, to communication. Right, right, exactly. Um, one of my favorite classes I taught at Michigan State was, I taught this conversation class, and thank God I didn't have desks. I had tables, real small tables, but I didn't have desks. So what I did is I would go in, and the students would help me the first day. I went, I went, because I went and looked at the room at the end of the <laughs> semester before I was going to teach the next semester. I went and looked at the rooms so I was going to be teaching, and I went, oh, this is great. This is great for conversation class with no desks. So what we did is um, the first day I had all, the, I went in early and had all the tables arranged. So there were four chairs and people had to sit and look at each other. Mm-hmm. And I had them arranged so I could walk around and do things. And so desks were gone. And um, I allowed laptops in the classroom because we often did things where they do joint writing things. Even though it was a conversation class, we had a lot of joint things they did to look stuff up. Um, and so, of course, I allowed laptops, but, you know, backpacks on the floor and everything else. There was sure. no textbook, no textbook. We didn't have a textbook, all that kind of stuff. And it was great because if they had been in those standard, remember those desks at Michigan State and Wells oh, yeah. Hall? And, and you you move your desk around and it's just, the, it's the stupidest setup, but these mm-hmm. little tables were ideal. Um, and so I thought, oh, good. I like that kind of classroom. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, and, this, and, and, and it was just easy to set things up in different ways too, so. Yeah, Nice. So we challenge our listeners, if you teach at Cornell, maybe you should consider teaching out of our learning space rather than out of a traditional classroom with desks that, goodness, maybe even mounted to, to the floor. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, had to teach in a, I had to teach in a lecture room one time where the desk mounted the floor and went, what the heck? Yeah, that's hard. Here's, here's hoping that space will be open again soon. Yes, yes. <laughs> Indeed, and it would be nice to have. It would be nice to have some classrooms available where there weren't desks, they're just chairs, and people mm-hmm. could sign up for those rooms. Mm-hmm. I, I yep. don't want a room with desk in it. That would be really nice that that room with desk. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Oh. So, Bill, what else is happening in the world of BVP? Oh, what's happening? Well, um, let's see. I'm working on my third novel. Um, wow. my, my second one's coming out this summer. It's a murder mystery that takes place here in Central California. Mm. But my third novel is more like literary fiction. Then I'm going to go back. When I finish this one, I'm going back. I started the sequel to The Murder Mystery because that's going to be a series. So I'll pick that one back up at the end of the summer when I get this other one, when I get this other one done. Um, so I'm working on that. Still doing talks, doing a little bit of research here and there, um, scholarly writing. I got a um, uh, something I'm working on with Russ Simonson. We'll see if he gets accepted. It's a it's like those short books I've done for ACFL. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, it's going to be on language acquisition. It's called Acquisition in a Nutshell. Oh, cool. um, so it's a little short little book, like an 80 page book for teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got that working, um, working on uh, something about explicit and implicit learning to sort those things out. It's going to mm-hmm. go, it's going to be published in Cambridge in, in their Element series. So I did a few things like that. Um, doing my, trying to resurrect my farewell show <laughs> so I can get on the road and do it. Wait yep. for COVID. I mean, I had a bunch of things lined up last year. Then COVID hit. I was like, ah. Yep. And then oh, this my. year, I was ready to do it at Ac- launch it at ACFL, but well, that didn't mm. work. Yep. yep. So yep. ACFL got canceled this year. I mean, it's not canceled; it's virtual. But yep. So it's some, somehow doing comedy and singing, doing a live performance on Zoom is not the same thing as having an audience. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You're telling <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, it'd All be right. like Aretha, right? Who's zooming who? Right? 
All right. Well, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, love, or are learning. So, go. Oh, my gosh. Um, what am I? Um, it, it's an expression or word, whatever you call it. Um, in French, when you, it's like a term of endearment. It's like, mon petit chouchou. Hmm. Do you know what that is? I couldn't translate it for you. My but little I, something. It's a cauliflower. <laughs> My little cauliflower. Ah. And it's like, I think it's a cauliflower. I think it's if I remember correctly. No, that sounds I'm, right. I'm I don't even know anymore. See, most of my French is implicit. I just know you just have mon petit chouchou. But I think it comes from, I think it comes from cauliflower. And so it's one of my favorite things. Like I say, I will say to someone, ah, no, 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 mon petit chouchou. I say it like that. Because it's, like, it's a great expression. It's a great word. Sure chouchou, mon chou. Yeah, I do think my, my middle school French teacher used that term from time to time, so because it really rung a little bell. <laughs> and I don't even know if people say the chouchou if they just say in French mon petit chou. I think I've heard both, but mm. but I like adding chouchou. I think it's kind of cute. Mon petit nice. chouchou. So there you go. I love it. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Um, Sam, it's nice to meet you. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you, Angelica, and we'll be talking soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. All right. Next week, we will talk with the director of the Cornell China Center, Ying Hua, and with Nina Chowpricha, the center's Ithaca campus coordinator. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.